0: Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman.
1: Greetings, Christina. Good to see you.
0: Good to see you, too. How's life? <laughs> Bouncy. <laughs> <laughs> Ready,
1: huh? Yeah, I don't blame you. We have a great show today.
0: It. Oh, yes, I am so looking forward to it.
1: Yes, greetings everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your medical guide along with Christina today as we travel through yet another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy searching for optimal health. And today we're going into an area that I really like a lot. You know, when we we talk about medicine, we talk about nursing and delivery of healthcare, and we have this pill that we give you because we've diagnosed this disease and this pill is going to help you, all the doctors and nurses do that, but where does that pill really come from? Well, we know it comes from the pharmaceutical companies, but where do they come up with the idea? And it's the scientists and the researchers that come up with these ideas. And today we're going to be speaking with Dominique Agostino. He's a doctor and an assistant professor of, in the Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology at the University, University of South Florida. His laboratories... Work on looking at diseases and looking for metabolic pathologies and solutions. And he's worked in areas of calorie restriction, special ketogenic diets, which we'll talk about, oxygen toxicity, which we talked about um, when we did our show on hyperbaric chambers. He's looking at uh, treatments for seizure disorders and epilepsy, uh, a number of metabolic disorders, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, ALS, we talked about ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, muscle wasting disease and cancer. So we're going to be speaking with Dr. D'Agostino today to find out what it's like being in the research world uh, in terms of health and medicine. But before we do, how do people get in touch with us, Christina?
0: Thanks, Dr. Wilman. Now, at any time during the show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Now, if you're just so happen listening it th- listening to this through a podcast, um, you can call us at any time at eight one eight Let's Talk eight one eight Let's Talk. And we love comments and questions. And if it's uh, for our special guest or for Dr. Wilman, we will make sure to get it over to them at any time. Because, you know, we know podcasts, you might be listening to this a year down the line or anything like that. We will make sure to still forward your message. And uh, make sure you leave your contact information if you um, would like your question answered. Thank you so much.
1: Great. So I first listened to uh, Dr. D'Agostino on uh, Bulletproof Radio. It was episode 85. He was talking about mastering ketosis. He's done a number of Bulletproof Radio shows. He's also done a number of uh, TED Talks, so I think he's qualified to be on our show today. And I think I would like to take this time to introduce to you and to all of our guests, Dr. Dominic D'Agostino. Welcome.
2: Thank you, Glenn and Christina. It's great to be here.
0: Great. Well, thank you for joining us. Yes. We're we're honored to come play with you now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Ready to play. Ready to play. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So. Dom, as the medical guide, I usually like to tell our listeners the path that I'm hoping we're going to take today. Uh, We're going to first learn a little bit about you, of course, uh, what got you into medicine and research and science, and where you went with the research. We're going to talk a little bit about research so people can understand that, how how someone can go along your path and take the steps through education, etc. Then we want to get into what research is a little bit about. We want to go into some of the areas that you specifically work in, and then we want to look at the future of uh, science and medicine and your future in research. How's that sound to you?
2: Great. Yeah, Excellent. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so let's start
1: right from the beginning. What got you interested in becoming a scientist and then into research and then we could talk about the field that you chose what what were your influences
2: Well, uh, I guess it goes back really to high school biology. And, uh, you know, I wasn't the best student in the world, but uh, I did challenge myself in high school with an honors uh, biology course. And that my teacher that I had at the time uh, really pushed me and inspired me to learn. And around the same time, I I I got into fitness and nutrition, so I wanted to learn more about my body to understand how I could manipulate it. I guess to just enhance my my strength and performance on the football field. Uh, so that I was, it was sort of maybe a, a, a self uh, interest in understanding my body more and how I could manipulate nutrition and supplements for performance and. When I majored in biology and nutrition in college, uh, I just, you know, the more questions that we answered um, or that got answered that I had, the more questions, you know, that, that came out of answering those questions. So in regards to nutrition, I always felt that nutrition was a very powerful uh you know, metabolic therapy. that That's what we call it, you know, and you can uh, manipulate nutrition in ways to promote uh, uh, longevity for uh, obviously for prevention of many diseases and to really target a vast array of, of pathologies that are out there that are currently being, you know, the, the drug companies have jumped on. So you know, it, my during my undergraduate years at Rutgers University, I, like many undergraduates do, they, they seek out to do uh, research in a laboratory, and I was more or less seeking research because I knew I needed it for my my resume to, to get into medical school uh, as a reference. So I was like, let me try to get some basic science research, and then I'll look more attractive you know, uh, when I start applying to medical schools. And when I, I did my my uh, senior research project, I became so, uh, I am really embraced the scientific mm. method. Mm. And I had a, a wonderful uh, mentor at the time, and it was in a clinical department, whereas most students that do research kind of work, you know, in, a, in a, a bench lab and really don't get to see patients, but I worked uh, in a in a medical department, uh, internal medicine, and uh, that gave me the opportunity to see how science would be translated into therapies. And uh, I worked under a number of great medical doctors and MD-PhDs. And. That research was on uh, the neural control of autonomic regulation, so how our brain controls our physiology, including our heart rate and our respiration. So it gave me, uh, my, my undergraduate research experience uh, really inspired me to understand the body as a whole, uh, not, not just neuroscience you know, or not just cardiovascular physiology, but really how the brain controls our physiology. And I was inspired instead of going to medical school to pursue a PhD, and because I just I felt I didn't know enough. I felt I wanted to know more, and um, that PhD uh, you know took another five years of school, <laughs> and uh, I continued doing it at the my undergraduate research or their medical school there, uh, University of Medicine Dentistry of New Jersey, and uh, that led ultimately to my path, uh, you know, as a neuroscientist, uh, my focus was really looking at uh, seizures uh, as they relate to different uh, disorders that, that, that arise during uh, special operations diving. So when I finished my PhD, I, I wrote a postdoctoral fellowship grant, and that grant was funded by the Office of Navy Research to understand how uh, high levels of oxygen and high levels of various gases uh, affect the brain and our physiology. And under certain conditions where a diver will breathe 100% oxygen, and this is sort of more or less in the realms of special operations diving done by Navy SEALs and other special operations units, they will encounter a problem called oxygen toxicity. And, uh, I was, my grant was essentially to understand the cellular and molecular mechanisms of oxygen toxicity and to develop ways to predict it and, and more importantly, to prevent it. And in the process of understanding oxygen toxicity of the brain, I delved into fundamentally what's going on with brain metabolism and, it's a, it was a bit of a leap, but we, I transitioned from looking to pharmacological approaches to a uh, nutritional approach. Uh, and this was inspired by the use of the ketogenic diet for drug refractory or drug resistant epilepsy. So when drugs fail to control seizures, it was uh, accepted uh, in medical practice, even as a standard of care to put patients on a carbohydrate-restricted ketogenic diet. And the the mechanism is not fully understood. The neuropharmacology of the ketogenic diet is a very intense area of research now. Uh, But it happened to be a very effective approach for the problem that I was contracted to solve, which was oxygen toxicity seizures. So the military and other investigators had looked at a, a broad array of, you know, strategies to, per mitigation strategies to prevent oxygen toxicity, and uh, I became inspired by some of the work showing that starvation, ketosis, or fasting, can uh, enhance brain energy metabolism that confers protection against these oxygen seizures. So... That, that really uh, inspired me to, to develop and test the metabolic therapies that we're using now in, in our lab. And it, the, the work started during my postdoctoral fellowship, and now it has transferred into, uh, you know, uh, expanding applications to my position now, which is assistant professor here at the College of Medicine.
1: Speaking of that, People, one of the things we do on our show, that was, a, that was pretty inspiring to listen to that whole thing. I know that you work with the Navy SEALs, the Department of the Navy, you work with NASA. There's a lot of areas that we're going to cover as we move forward. Uh, we always talk uh, for people that are listening to our show and some people are looking for careers. If someone wanted a career in research or doing what you do, what are the steps that need to be taken?
2: Um, that's a good question because I get that question a lot and, uh, I would tell them to do sort of what I did. Uh, I have, you know, we all have specific in things that we're interested in, right? Uh, I would find the investigators that are doing those things that you're very passionate about. And the best way to do it is basically to go on PubMed uh, or Medline and, and search out the kind of research that people are doing. Say someone's researching, say you're, you know, you're interested in, uh, phytonutrients or say you're interested in the ketogenic diet. So you would, you know, do a a search on the ketogenic diet and pull some papers on it and see who the authors are and see where Mm -hmm. those institutes are. And then, you know, if, if, Wherever you want to be, if, if a particular person is in proximity to you, you would uh, reach out. Usually there's contact information on the uh, the corresponding author's contact information. is typically on a publication, um, whether it be their phone number or their email. And what I did is just, you know, reach out to uh, when I stumbled upon this idea of nutritional ketosis, I probably pulled the contact information by uh, 20 or 30 different people. And I was on the phone with those people to determine, you know, to figure out how they got into their field of research, how they get their funding, what their life is like day to day, you know, uh, what, what path they, they see themselves, you know, going into. So you really got to determine, you know, uh, the people that are doing what you want to do. And, you know, don't be shy. You got to reach out to them and, and uh, connect with them. It's all about building relationships, you know, and, and you might not know it, but, you know, but one, you connect with one person and that person connects you to a network of other people. And you get the opportunity, for example, if you're a student, to do some some research that you never thought you could, you could do. And, uh, and a lot of investigators, will welcome the opportunity of a high school student or an undergraduate to shadow other students or investigators in the lab. And if that student performs, and that, I know in my case, if I see that the student is very passionate about the research, uh, which is first and foremost, the most important thing for me, I'll give that student an opportunity and you know maybe even set them up for like a paid position, but they sort of have to prove themselves first with their interest, their knowledge on a particular subject, and then, um, and then we can explore, you know, uh, other opportunities if they want to pursue a PhD or something like that. What um, What kind of personality do
1: you need to be a uh, researcher? What's your What is your life like?
2: <laughs> well, I would say my lab has a it is very eclectic you know it's a broad array of different personalities but as a principal investigator or a leader of the lab i like to position those people uh into uh into s- position them in a way where they could best use their expertise mm-hmm. you know uh and i think that's important and i think you really have to know your, the people you're working for on a, on a personal level. And and I like to sit down in my office face-to-face with uh, my, my graduate students and even undergraduates and postdocs and, and figure out really what inspires them. And if you put them on a task that they're capable of doing and that they're passionate about, they're going to do much better than if you put them on a task that they're that they're not very enthusiastic about. So what I like to do is kind of hand select people based on the needs of the lab to make sure that they're happy and they they have a, a right fit. And I think that's probably the most important thing to understand you, the people that that are working for you, because it's those people that are really the motor behind your lab. You know, you're kind of steering the boat, but if you if you, you got to be good to your people and you have to understand them from the basic, you know, most fundamental level, and then you can you can better carve out a uh, a position in the lab based on tasks that need to be done in the lab. Uh, you know, we have I have a a Ph.D. student in my lab now, and she's just amazing with surgical techniques you know her hands are just so we i have her you know handle some of the the surgery type procedures you know other students they just love data you know just give them data and they love to do statistics they'll analyze it in every shape and form possible and it's just like you know you got five projects and just give them the data and they they love to manipulate the data and do all sorts of statistical tests on it Uh, you know, other people like to design diets and basically do formulating in the lab and, and, you know, do mixing and measuring out and things like that. So, so really, you really have to know your, your, the people that, and make sure that they're the right fit for you, that they fit in the lab culturally, so to speak.
1: What's the best part of, of this for you? Where's the magic in it? Where do you still get your joy?
2: The magic uh, for me, and I think this would apply to any endeavor that you uh, do, is the opportunity to contribute to something much bigger and greater than yourself, you know, than a publication or a book or whatever. It's really getting information out there that people can use and providing a service to people. Uh, is really the most, in giving back. So uh, I had so many, um, I'm very grateful for all the mentors that I've had, for all the, um, you know, the very charitable mentors, you know, with their time, with their, with their resources to send me to meetings. And uh, also my mentors introduced me to people that opened doors that I would otherwise not have. And, it, it, the the magic for me is to now be in that opportunity where I'm a mentor, where I can uh, send my students, you know, to another country to present their work and connect with other people, mm-hmm. uh, which is always a joy, and, and to give them that opportunity when they otherwise, you know, wouldn't have it, and, uh, and actually have them kind of take on some of the roles that I'm doing now. Maybe I get kind of overloaded with teaching, so... I will uh, ask, and you know the people working under me, students that have may, maybe already got a PhD working under me in another lab, and and give them some of my teaching jobs. So that it works great for me, right? Because I'm not weighted down with yeah, teaching, yeah. and I give them the opportunity to to teach a course, develop a curriculum, put it on their resume. So that 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 becomes uh, really important. But I, I think the magic is about building relationships and giving back. And sure. uh, the more I I get along in, in science the more I realize that that's really the most important thing and that's what makes me happy. Uh, it doesn't matter how many grants you have or how many publications you have, if you're not connecting with people, building relationships, and providing a valuable service to others, uh, it's not, you know, it's not going to be fulfilling.
1: Very nice. I like that.
2: So, so Dom, you're
1: you're in the neurosciences, you're a molecular pharmacologist, you're a molecular physiologist. When I worked in the emergency department or I'm trying to figure out uh, someone's level of consciousness I can, I can ask them certain questions and analyze whether they're alert and they're oriented to time and place and person uh, whether they can analyze things, memorize things etc. So I can understand consciousness in terms of Uh, how to measure it, but I don't understand how consciousness happens. Can you explain consciousness to me and to our (laughs) audience? And and within that, also tell us about the mind. Maybe they're connected.
2: Well, you know, consciousness is a very complex (laughs) it's a very complex subject. I mean, uh, it, there's, there's a lot of things we don't understand and that's what really got me into the the path of neuroscience. I wanted, you know, the brain controls everything. I mean, it's, it's our reality, our, uh, you know, it, it shapes the world that we live in. Our internal representations are just, you know, a product of, of how our consciousness, you know, interprets everything. So, Uh, I'm not sure I could sufficiently answer your question. It's sort of like asking the question, well, uh, you know, if someone says they understand quantum mechanics, if someone tells you that they understand quantum mechanics, you could bet that they definitely don't know, understand quantum mechanics because (laughs) no one understands quantum mechanics. You know, the people who've wrote the books on quantum mechanics don't understand quantum mechanics. Great. which made me even more motivated to try to understand quantum mechanics. But I've, I've given up. So I would say the same thing could really apply to consciousness. Uh, consciousness, uh, you know, obviously that's part of um, the individuality uh, of humans and, and, and animals, too, uh, is that, they, that we all have a different consciousness and, and perceive the world. Differently, which is maybe different than consciousness, um, but you know, from a from a fundamental neuroscience perspective, you know, I could break it down into uh, action potentials of neurons and the resting membrane potential of you know, the cells within the CA1 region of the hippocampus. Mm-hmm. So this is what, you know, which controls learning and memory. So these are things that we do in the lab. We record directly from areas of the brain, for example, that control, you know, uh, autonomic regulation or learning and memory. And we seek to understand how to uh, correct their uh Activity when something goes wrong, and we seek to also just fundamentally understand how these, how the brain cells communicate to one another. So they, they neurons in the brain will have processes, and one neuron can make a connection to ten thousand other neurons, right? So that creates that creates uh, infinite a, a number of of possibilities of connections. So what we have the ability to do is uh, to to understand fundamentally how those neurons are communicating to one another, uh, why they don't communicate to one another in a proper way and to better develop in my expertise as a metabolic therapy that can preserve consciousness homeostasis so brain metabolism i guess you would say is what i focus on uh and we developed um, metabolic therapies that can preserve brain metabolism under environmental extremes so that would be some of the the military work that were contracted but this would also apply and have uh implications for uh, neurological pathologies that result from, in one way or another, impaired brain energy metabolism, and that is really tightly linked to uh, our environment, our our nutritional status, our our mental emotional well being. So the interrelationship behind all these things is very complex and not something we directly study. You know, as a s- scientists, we kind of break things down. To reduced preparations, but we'll understand things from their very basic components all the way up to behavioral studies, and in between. But uh, so that was a very convoluted uh, answer to your question, but it's kind of bringing you, you know, kind of my my perspective. Uh, the basis of consciousness is something that really inspired me to go into this field. Uh, and it's not a question that I could easily answer because I don't know, you know. We don't I ask think,
1: the easy questions,
2: yeah. I, I, I get that, so that that's good. Uh, <laughs> kind of put me on the spot there. Uh, but Any, we do, you know, we do understand uh, there's a certain you know processes that can enhance our reality or enhance our consciousness, and what we look at are ways to uh, further augment and enhance the consciousness that we have to improve mm. our, our situation and our reality. And I think, uh, and that can come, there's many ways to do that. You could do it nutritionally, pharmacologically, you could do it with various uh, herbs and, and supplements that are out there. And, and also, you know, environment. I think, you know, going back to relationships, I think, you know, healthy relationships is probably one of the best things you could do for brain health. You know, nice. like getting going outside, fresh air, sunshine, you know, some of the basic things. Uh, we as scientists are now realizing that these things are probably the most important things to focus on. Uh, and I think clinicians are starting to realize this too with their patients. Any quick definition of mind? Of mind, uh, quick definition. Um, okay, a slower one. I don't think no.
0: so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: That's so. You've you've basically uh, stumped my mind here. Uh, <laughs> your mind is your. I would say, you know, your your internal representation of what the world is, and I think that for me has changed radically. My world vision or my perception of what I, you know, perceive as reality has changed dramatically from my teenage years to the college years to now, uh, and that falls back on a, a lot of different things. Your your worldview can influence that. You know, uh, I think if you're going to ask that question, just the best way to do it is, you know, to ask someone like what, you know, what inspires you? Why, why do you do what you do? And fundamentally, a lot, sometimes people really don't think about why they do what they do, but we really need to take time to meditate to, we need quiet time. We need to reserve time every day to reflect on, on what we're grateful for and uh, what's most important. And, uh, and I would say that's, that's the mind for me. It's mindful living is actually oh, paying nice. attention to do, you know, to understand why you do what you do. And I think that's probably the most important thing. And I, I sometimes, you know, I am uh, I don't follow through with that. Sometimes, you know, I'll come to work and just be, I feel like, a, you know, just one task, you know, handling one task after another, but not really taking a step back and 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 prioritizing the things that are most important like you know did i call my mom or you know did i did i follow up with this friend that was going through a crisis or something like that or did i get back to that that patient who just had a question about the ketogenic diet you know some of these things are are more important things than daily tasks that are pressing you know or appear to be pressing you you keep mentioning the ketogenic
1: diet um And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. I I think that the research that's happening now is going to be mainly about the neurosciences. I think it's our final frontier, other than on a cellular level, uh, that the, the brain and the nervous system are where the future is going to be. And hopefully we'll talk about that a little bit near the end. But I want to talk about research in general for a moment and then get more specifically into your research. How does a research project happen? Is it something you think about, or you get uh, you get notified by NASA that they want to deal with the astronauts or the the Navy SEALs? How does how does a research project actually
2: happen? Well, with money, (laughs) but there's a question, you know, uh, there's a question that needs to be answered. And that could be, you know, what is the molecular mechanism, you know, of this type of cancer or something like that. Uh, So it usually starts out, there's a call for proposals. So what you can do as a research scientist is just go on the NIH website, go on, you know, the Department of Defense website, uh, we do some contracted work with foundations, so you could go to the ALS, you know, foundation website or rare metabolic disorders and see if they are uh, actively funding projects, you know, uh, in this area. The one of the one of the issues with being a, a researcher in a pharmacology department but doing nutrition research, but we're sort of. Understanding the neuropharmacology of the ketogenic diet, so it is it is pharmacology, sort of so to speak. Uh, you basically look to see what what funding opportunities are available. Uh, of course, you pick the funding opportunities. You pick a problem that you're most adept to uh, understanding and, and answering with the tools that you have. And you write up a proposal, you know, starting with specific aims, starting with a hypothesis, starting with a question, right? And then a hypothesis, and then specific aims that address that particular problem that you're addressing. And then you send in a proposal to a government or private agency, and you hope to hear back that they like your idea. And uh, sometimes you submit like a letter of intent first. And they're like, okay, we like the idea, and then we'll encourage you to write a full proposal. And then they may or may not fund it. Or you can just go ahead and write a full proposal and then submit it. Typically, it's based upon a request for a specific area of research. Sometimes you can submit a proposal that's a completely novel idea that they're not necessarily asking for and just hope that, you know, they find your idea and your strategy very innovative and they say, you know, this this is something we, we would consider funding, so write us a full proposal on that. Um, or research could happen if you know, you know, in industry, for example, there are various companies out there who are interested in answering a particular question and, uh, you know, that could potentially support some product that they have or some intellectual question that they have. So we have, uh, you know, one or two contracts with companies that just reached out to us and said, you know, what if you do this project? And we're really interested in seeing the results for that. And uh, that's that's very rare you come across, you know, companies with money who just want to answer a scientific question without any kind of agenda. Uh, Occasionally that happens, but more likely... A company will uh, have a product, and they they might reach out to you and say, "You're uh, an expert in this area of nutrition. Well, we developed this nutritional supplement, and we want to see if it can, you know, uh, re- re- reduce fat levels in you know in a, in a study. So we would like to to test this. Or some companies are interested in testing their particular products." In, uh, in an animal model of ALS or a seizure model or a cancer model. So we have the ability, uh, these tools are available. So uh, if if a company, for example, has a particular product that they think would be useful in extending, uh, enhancing learning and memory in an Alzheimer's mouse model, then we, we could study that. And that, that preclinical data, would uh, safety data and preclinical data would be good grounds to then go on to a human trial, uh, which, you know, this is how science works. You kind of work up the the ladder.
1: When you uh, are approached by a company that wants to do something, obviously the company wants uh, a good result. And this is one of the things that we always are concerned about when we read uh, articles and journals and papers, you know, this drug is excellent, but then we find out it was sponsored by the company that makes the drug, and so we get concerned about bias.
2: How does bias uh, work in your work? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Well, we're not actively uh, doing any contracted research for companies that have drugs or even nutritional products, really. We develop our own stuff, you know, and then Mm -hmm. uh, companies will come to us. But that's a very good question because I see it a lot uh, among mm-hmm. other researchers and universities. And uh, when I get a paper and it's a particular drug, I'll go right to the acknowledgements and, and basically determine where where did the funding come from for this study. Uh, we are, for example, we're doing some research right now uh, with ALS on the Deanna Protocol. So Deanna was an ALS patient, and uh, her father who is a retired orthopedic surgeon, uh, tested a few supplements out on her that, you know, most people are are, are familiar with, soluble co- coenzyme Q10 and uh, 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 GABA and, and a combination of supplements that are coined the Deanna Protocol. And this foundation uh, called Winning the Fight Against Neurological Diseases reached out to us and they were very, they sincerely wanted to determine the mechanism, the efficacy and the mechanism of this in an an animal model of ALS, which mimics the familial form or genetic ALS. Mm -hmm. There are about 20, 10 or 20% of people who have ALS, it's it's genetic, but the pathology is, is very similar to people who have sporadic ALS. So, you know, when we, when we do uh, research like this, what we'll do is have someone, will formulate the diets, you know, with the various supplements. And the person giving the diet is different from the person that's doing the, uh, the motor function tests on the animals, you know. And there's a treadmill device, sort of like we have, called a rotor rod. There's various, like, uh, behavioral tests that we'll do to assess... The, the motor function of the animal. So that person is blinded, right? And there right. is usually a, a, a key that we can refer to. So the person feeding the animals uh, is different from the person that's actually performing the tests. And then we don't really know the results until the end. And even at the end, when we harvest the tissues and the blood of, of, you know, this, we can send it out to an independent laboratory, and it just has a code on it with a number, and then all the data, get, you know, comes back to us. And, uh, and then we, you know, have the key, and then we can see what groups did good relative to the control. And we write this up as a publication. Uh, if it was funded by the, you know, a particular company or foundation, we'll just, you know, state that in in the uh, in the uh, the in the manuscript. And uh, any manuscript of you know high merit will have to go through the peer review process, and mm-hmm. it's it's anonymous. So, and some of the people reviewing your work may not necessarily want that work out there. So it may conflict with some of their findings if it's a nutritional approach. And people reviewing it are funded by drug companies that are coming out with a drug. The target, you know, there's, you know, these are. This is just inherent in the process. Um, But that's that's typically so. There's a lot. There's safeguards, you know, to to prevent that from happening. And of course, if, if I'm a reviewer and I've gotten papers that were funded by drug companies and I'll say, well, I want to see the raw data, you know, show me the raw numbers and, and was this blinded? If it wasn't blinded, I don't, I don't accept this data. I want to see this particular experiment reproduced in a, in a blinded fashion, you know, or I want an independent lab. To measure, you know, this particular molecule in the blood instead of the the lab that was funded by the drug company or things like that. So that peer review process is 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 good in in many ways. There's there's some there's some issues to it because if I'm writing a paper on uh, a particular pathway or drug, I can actually recommend to the editor of the journal to select certain. certain reviewers they may not necessarily pick those reviewers but sometimes the community is so small that you're working in uh you can guess that at least you know one of the 10 reviewers that you suggest would would you know get your paper so you know there's that it's it's anonymous but there are there are you know sort of safeguards uh you know the peer review process is 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 pretty good uh you know, it works for the most part. And the, the better the impact journal, you know, usually the better. Not not always, but usually better. Um, so, yeah, that, that's yeah, I think that was my good. answer I, there. Yeah, <laughs> You gave us uh, good things.
1: Uh, we always talk about when uh, people that are listening to our show read an article or something. So you talk yeah. about going to the acknowledgments and blinded studies. That was very good information for people. So let's start getting yeah. into your actual research. And I know you talk about the ketogenic diet and uh, the abilities or potential abilities for treatments in, in areas of seizures and cancer, number of things. I know that when in medicine, whenever I see ketones in the body, if I'm testing somebody and there's extra ketones in the blood or in the urine or something like that, I start getting nervous because there's... Uh, a lot of diseases and disease states that this is very dangerous for, and yet you've jumped right into the area of ketones and are actually promoting the process. So if you wouldn't mind, explain a little bit of ketones to our audience and the ketogenic diet briefly, and then we'll get into maybe some of the uh, ways that it can help.
2: Sure. Uh, That's that's really important to... Uh, answer these questions right up front. Ketone terminology, if you will. Yes. Um Okay. So ketones historically have been thought of as a very uh, a bad thing. So elevated ketone levels in the blood were thought to be a byproduct of fat metabolism, and that these these ketone bodies uh, and there's there's two primarily uh, were an indication of of a of pathology. And uh, they were really considered metabolic poison. And in, many, in some cases, they are. So there's two situations where ketosis is a bad thing. For a type 1 diabetic, you can get, you can fall into a situation called diabetic ketoacidosis. Diabetic ketoacidosis occurs only in people who cannot make insulin. So, type one diabetics, and in that situation, uh, without insulin, your body cannot regulate its production of ketones. So, a type one, if a type one diabetic goes into ketoacidosis, they would need an injection of insulin and then fluids and rehydration. Um, so, it's a very specific pathology that occurs only in type one diabetics, uh, diabetic ketoacidosis. The other form of ketosis that's pathological is alcoholic ketoacidosis. Mm -hmm. So consumption of alcohol, in particular, uh, after you haven't eaten for a while, if you're fasted and go on an alcohol binge. So emergency rooms like during Mardi Gras and stuff see a lot of this, right? So say if I'm in a fasted state and I drink a lot of alcohol, uh, essentially what it's doing is impairing my liver, so, it impairs my, bo- my liver's ability to regulate blood glucose through gluconeogenesis. Mm-hmm. So, the, the liver is actually pumping out glucose. You know, if we haven't eaten it for a while, the liver has glycogen, and it, it helps maintain glucose levels by breaking down glycogen, uh, and this is called gluconeogenesis. Consuming too much alcohol, in particular, in a fasted state will cause runaway ketogenesis in the liver. And uh, it'll prevent your liver you know because you're it's a metabolically deranged condition. If you're drunk and you're dehydrated and your electrolytes are off and you can go into diabetic ketoacidosis. So that's that there are the two pathologies. So type 1 or alcohol
1: or alcoholic ketoacidosis.
2: Yeah, yeah. Alcoholic keto. Right. So what did I say? Diabetic. Oh, yeah. Alcoholic ketoacidosis and diabetic uh, ketoacidosis right. are the two pathologies. Right. This is much different than uh, starvation ketosis or fasting ketosis. So, uh, and I like to start with fasting first, so if we're eating carbohydrates in our diet, uh, I'm kind of not, so I'm in nutritional ketosis, but if, if you've... Uh, right now, most people who you know, are, are watching this show, uh, their brains are being fueled off glucose. You know, In a fed state, 100% of brain energy metabolism essentially is being derived from glucose, the primary source of energy for your brain. If you stop eating today and uh, four or five days later, more than, you know, roughly more than half of your brain energy metabolism will be coming from ketone bodies. So, what happens is that, you know, in the absence of carbohydrates or in the absence of food in general, we mobilize our fat stores to create Mm -hmm. energy. But fats, have an inability to readily cross the blood-brain barrier to preserve brain energy metabolism. So these fats are metabolized in our liver through a process called beta-oxidation. And accelerated fat oxidation in the liver contributes to an accumulation of water-soluble fat breakdown products called ketone bodies. So these ketone bodies are very efficient metabolic uh, substrates. They're, they're considered an alternative energy source. And what's most important is that unlike fatty acids, the ketone bodies can quickly cross the blood-brain barrier and they, they replace glucose as your primary source of energy for your brain. And this occurs under conditions of therapeutic fasting or, or starvation. And it allows us to to undergo extended periods without food, and it's really why we're able to evolve with with such big brains that we have. Um, So you can mimic the effect of fasting ketosis with carbohydrate restriction in the form of a ketogenic diet, which is high fat and low carbohydrate and just moderate to low protein, sufficient amount of proteins. Eating a diet that's high in fat, healthy fats, not hydrogenated fats, so a healthy mix of fats with adequate levels of protein for our bodies uh, you know, to repair and grow, our nails and our hair, things like that, and with a restriction of carbohydrates, mimics that physiological state of fasting. So, and it does this by suppressing the hormone insulin. So insulin is a storage hormone, and when insulin level is low, it allows our body to break down fats for energy much more easily. And, uh, and insulin also drives a lot of uh, uh, anabolic processes uh, and, and things that grow. So if you have a tumor, tumor cells have, you know, five, ten times the amount of insulin receptors the cells actually do. So insulin's a big driver for tumor growth, and we could get into that later. But, uh, but the idea is that if you shift the macronutrient composition of a diet to uh, a ketogenic diet, which is used clinically uh, by Johns Hopkins and Mayo Clinic originally developed these protocols, Uh, uh, shifting the macronutrient composition of the diet can put you into nutritional ketosis. That's that's very different than pathological ketosis. Mm. So nutritional ketosis is when your body is breaking down fats and then you elevate these ketone bodies to a very tight range, you know, usually within, you know, the 1 to 4 millimolar range. Uh, And then if if your ketone bodies start to get too high, we have compensatory mechanisms that bring it back down. If ketone levels get too high, we start to see them in our urine. And if ketone levels get too high, it actually stimulates the release of insulin from our pancreas. And that quickly shuts off or reduces the level of ketones in our blood. So we have ketone-induced suppression of ketogenesis. So it's a very nice, tightly regulated system in 99% of people, you know, or more. Just the people who are type 1 diabetics can't do this. Uh, It's interesting that I have a type 1 diabetic PhD student who is on a ketogenic diet now, and he feels much better because his brain is not—he's not, he's not relying—he can reduce his his glucose levels, and uh, and by staying in, uh, in in nutritional ketosis, his requirement for insulin is much lower, right? So the the least amount of insulin we can use for type one diabetic, the better. The better off you'll be you're not as reliant on that because you shifted your metabolism to work off these ketone bodies it's a little bit tricky trickier for a type 1 diabetic and that's something that we can come back to but 99 plus percent of people uh can do perfectly fine off nutritional ketosis which or ketosis in general which could be through intermittent fasting uh, short-term fasting and a ketogenic diet, which I mentioned is just simply switching out the carbohydrates with fats and keeping your carbohydrate levels low, protein adequate, fat high, and that that gets your body to generate these uh, ketone bodies, which are alternative energy sources for your brain, your heart, and other peripheral tissues. And being in that state of nutritional ketosis uh, has a, many therapeutic benefits that we can go into. It's working much more as an alternative fuel. Uh, it has many other effects, so it can enhance any many other signaling processes in the body.
1: One of the things that we get concerned about, we talk about nutrition and diet uh, on this show quite often, and one of the things that I'm concerned about is <clears throat> there are a lot of people out there that diet in an inappropriate way. We have the bulimics, the anorexics, people that are on uh, severe weight loss diets. What, what can go wrong with this and should this be done if you're going to choose to be on a ketogenic diet? Should you be doing this under the uh, care of a doctor or, or a uh, research scientist like yourself?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. If you're using the ketogenic diet for the metabolic management of a disorder, uh, I would highly suggest you know working with a trained dietitian or connecting with uh, a resource that can help you do that. Uh, the Charlie Foundation is actually a a probably the leading ketogenic diet resource uh, out there. And it was started by Hollywood producer Jim Abrams. Uh, he he uh, produced a number of movies, including Airplane and Naked mm-hmm. Gun movies. And his son, Charlie, had uh, drug-resistant seizures. And it was these seizures were resistant to uh, every form of drug that he was throwing at it. And he stumbled across in the literature the ketogenic diet that was being used by Johns Hopkins. And it worked remarkably well for him. And uh, Jim had the means to develop a foundation, and that foundation has become an incredible resource. I think there's about 150, 200 worldwide, but 150 clinics in the United States that have uh, dietitians in them that can assist patients with uh, the medical management of uh, epilepsy. And, and other disorders that cause seizures. So this can include metabolic disorders like uh, uh, glucose transporter, type one deficiency syndrome. It's actually a medical, uh, it's, it's a genetic disease where the brain is starved of glucose and nutritional ketosis is the only option for these patients, there, there are no drugs available. Uh, so the patients are put on nutritional ketosis and they have to adhere to these very strict diets uh, for, for, you know, to basically be conscious and, and to suppress the seizures. Uh, well, we're developing ketone supplements that can elevate ketones independent of the, the ketogenic diet. So these are being tested right now uh, in preclinical models and hopefully tracked towards uh, a medical food type application. But, yeah, for a medical uh, disorder, you know, whether it be cancer or, uh, you know, seizure disorders or, you know, even other disorders like uh, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, I think uh, a patient really needs to work with a trained dietitian. Now, if someone has type 2 diabetes or is obese, I think that carbohydrate-restricted ketogenic diet could quickly put someone with type 2 diabetes into remission. That's a pretty bold statement, right?
1: So <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen it work actually, and it is yeah. a bold statement.
2: Yeah, uh, I am uh, pretty sure that you know ninety plus percent of people with type two diabetes, living with type two diabetes, uh, would respond remarkably well to carbohydrate restriction. Maybe not necessarily the level of the ketogenic diet, which is, you know, clinically speaking, it's like 85% fat, you know, 10% carbohydrate or 10% protein, roughly, and uh, and like 5% uh, carbohydrates. But maybe something like a modified Atkins diet, which is mm-hmm. kind of a healthy version of of the Atkins diet. That's actually being used at Johns Hopkins. Uh, I know Dr. Eric Kosoff is really a, a pioneer in the medical uh, use of the ketogenic diet. Um, he's at Johns Hopkins. And you know, in that situation, uh, I think there are resources out there. I know the, the ketogenic com is really one. I think they even have a book for, uh, for type 2 diabetes. Uh, Is on the website and is written by by a doctor and a a, um, nutrition expert. So there's a number of resources out there that, if you're not, you know, using the ketogenic diet specifically to manage something serious, type two diabetes is somewhat serious. uh, Mm -hmm. You can embark on it yourself if you know you have the proper uh, understanding and there books out there that are essentially step-by-step guides and a lot of resources that people can access for free. Uh, alternatively, I always suggest that people work initially with a dietitian to set them up because a lot of people... Just they don't even understand how to track their macronutrients, you know, when they're like, I'm on a high protein diet because, you know, I eat pasta every day and pasta has protein, right? So <laughs> so there's there's you know, that's that's like my mom, right? Or like, you know, other people that I know. It's like sure. uh, there's there's the generation that could really benefit from this. Maybe the older generation are not familiar with these scientific terms. Like if you tell them, you know, uh, you know, count your macronutrients, make sure you get X amount of protein, the carbs and and fiber, that that's kind of difficult for a lot of people to do. So a nutrition, uh, you know, a, a registered dietitian or a nutritionist can set a person up initially and get them uh, set up with. There's various apps. To do this. There's various uh, internet tools that you just type in the foods and it spits out the macronutrient profile and the micronutrient profile. And then you can, you know, uh, develop a meal plan based on that. And that can be the great, re- the great thing about a nutritional therapy is that you get results almost the next day. Within 24 hours, you can have like your blood glucose almost under control. You know, I've seen numbers in the mid-200s and then literally within 24 hours they're in the mid hundreds and holding and then they gradually decrease from there you know and the difference between a blood glucose of 250 and you know 125 is tremendous i mean you're it's going to prevent the rapid acceleration of age-related chronic diseases you know if you could bring your blood glucose down and your insulin down
1: that's true you know this the ketogenic diet certainly we could do a whole hour on this and I would recommend people that are listening or watching this show go to uh, Dr. D'Agostino's uh, talks on Bulletproof Radio I think episode 85 was one of them and then a couple of the TED talks just type them in there's, a, there's an enormous amount of stuff on this uh, in a couple of sentences, what's the what do you see in the future of research 50 years from now?
2: Fifty years from now? Well, I think uh, you know, pharmacology research is going to go on no matter what, right? So I'm in the field of developing and testing what we call metabolic therapies. and uh, that's a term that we use when we write grants because if we call it a nutritional therapy, you know, reviewers will kind of roll their eyes and say, well, you know, this is the subject of self-help books or something like that. So so when we know that nutrition is probably the most powerful thing for prevention and treatment of many illnesses. So I think the future really is, there's a there's an emerging interest in nutritional ketosis, but I think nutrition in general uh, as a... As something that doctors will be trained in, trained to understand, instead of having no training at all, uh, the future doctor will understand how to use food as medicine, and will understand how to uh, implement proper nutrition for prevention. You know whether or not the patient follows it, it's another story. But they will be able to provide the patient uh, with uh, the right information, and um, and I really think that metabolism and metabolic therapies, nutritional interventions is the future of medicine because we need to get on people early to prevent many of these highly preventable diseases with simple nutritional advice and and, and strategies. Beautiful. Dominique, we're coming
1: to the end of our show and at this time we always ask our guest for a personal health tip, something that uh, would benefit all of us. Do you have something for us?
2: A personal health tip. Sounds like
1: you've given uh, a whole bunch of them already. Yeah.
2: Uh, well, if I had to just reach out, I, I'm thinking of things that are important to me. And I know, you know, when the dust clears after the day and I get home, uh, it's really important for me uh, to connect with those that uh, I love. And whether that be your significant other or your pet or, in my case, both. Uh, so I, I like to go for uh, long walks, like at night. And it's, it's a really good uh, way for me to wind down, get exercise at the same time, and kind of connect with nature. And uh, that downtime, the more hectic our lives become, the more essential carving out time that downtime becomes more important. So yeah. uh, people need to take time to reflect on things what's important and to just get outside and and embrace nature and embrace, you know, relationships that are really important to them. Beautiful. Christina, any thoughts?
0: So many. <laughs> it's the end of the show. <laughs> that is a thought. Uh, yes. I mean, what is uh, really beautiful in this whole show um, uh Dominic, is how you have inspired many to really look at prevention through what we have around us, which is our nutrition, which is about nature. It is about... It's, it's almost going back in time to, a, to a, a generation where that's all people really had. You know, they had to rely on their food sources. They had to rely on, on you know exercise out there, um, and and I, I, I come from a world of, you know, body work and, and healing arts, so to hear a, a researcher say this is just so thrilling for me, and I thank you so much, because in our world today, everybody wants proof. They want scientific proof and fact, and when I speak to other people within the medical field, dealing with certain medicines is always like, well, you've got to prove it. You've got to prove that that works, you know, the, like the Chinese medicines and, you know, the Ayurvedic medicines and, yeah. you know, simply just, can you just cleanse your nasal passages just once, <laughs> you know, and next thing you know, what allergy, <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. it's the simplicities yeah. of life and nutrition and, and it's, uh, thank you so much for inspiring all of us. It's been an honor.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: I appreciate it. That's great. I'm very grateful to our very special guest, Dr. Dominique de Agostino, for his wisdom and experience and expertise. I'd also like to thank my healers and my teachers for keeping me on my journey. Thank you, Christina and Yoga Hub and Segovia for putting together Magical Medical Tour, our 119th episode. And I'm looking forward to getting together with everyone in our next episode as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy searching for optimal health. Till that time, thank you so much, Dominique. We appreciate it. And I wish you all Optimal health.
0: Thank you, Dr. Glenn Woolman. And thank you again, Dr. Dominic. And we, of course, would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. If you would like to connect with Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, we definitely, definitely would love for you to visit his website at Ketonutrition.org. Ketonutrition.org. And of course, uh, you can connect with our, Dr. Glenn Woolman through his website, glennwoolman.com, where we encourage you to learn about his metaphor, square breath. Back to meditation, of course. We're always grateful for any feedback and comments and suggestions that you might have. Give us a call at 818 let's talk. 818 818- let's talk. So until next time, namaste. So who are the angels? Who are these loving hands? These hands that we sometimes feel and usually don't. The angels are a a vibration more than anything else. They are a group of beings who exist in one particular frequency, one particular vibration, which is only love. The kind of love that we believe in as unconditional, the kind of love that we reach out to when we really need something, the kind of love that is the source